What's up, everyone? Thank you for making us a part of your day, wherever you are, however you may be joining us. I appreciate you joining us today. Today, I'm with Pastor Nick Quiet. He is a about to be a doctoral student in New Testament theology. He's also currently an associate pastor of First Baptist Church in California near the LA area. How are you doing, Nick? I appreciate your time. Oh, I'm 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 going off no sleep and no energy because I just had a newborn son about two months ago. And so but I've got enough coffee in me probably to power the Titanic and all that. So I'm doing good, brother. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, of course, man. I hope that's not an excuse for some lackadaisical answers here. Um, oh, it definitely is. It definitely <laughs> is. Yeah. So today, if you're joining us, we're going to be talking about uh, is the New Testament sexist? We're going to be looking at a few different passages throughout the New Testament. Uh, we'll probably open up for a Q&A at the end if we have any questions. And yeah, so to start off, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, what you're looking to do, uh, things like that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, so I'm an associate pastor, uh, which involves spiritual formation and Christian education, among other things. Uh, so teaching, uh, creating curriculum, stuff like that for the local church. And so this question for me uh, is very important to the, uh, you would call it a issue of orthodoxy. I mean, you can believe all sorts of things about this and still be a Christian, uh, but it does affect how you engage in the local church. So orthopraxy, this is a big topic, you know. Uh, so my uh, research interests are in Pauline theology, specifically New Testament theology, uh, issues of Pauline uh, women is a big one, Pauline eschatology. Uh, I've written a book on uh, holiness in the New Testament, or at least in Paul from a, a Wesleyan perspective. I'm kind of a Wesleyan Baptist, a weird little hybrid of that. Uh, I podcast all the time. My wife and I co-host the Split Frame of Reference podcast, and Thomas and I co-host the Synergist podcast. That's spelled the Sinner way, S-I-N-N. E-R-G-I-S-T uh, podcast. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a geek for New Testament theology, specifically stuff in Paul. And uh, it's, I'm, yeah, I'm just a, a big fan of the Bible and I love studying and teaching and learning. So that's kind of who I am in a nutshell. And of course, married in with the affirmation newborn kid who's <laughs> outside right now, not outside the house. He's outside with my wife. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a lot of exciting stuff and I love hearing about it. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into studying? Like, uh, specifically, because we're going to talk about is the New Testament sexist, what kind of drove you to get interested into that question? Yeah, so uh, I'll answer that in a biographical way. I grew up uh, in a, I don't know if this denomination's out where you are in Pennsylvania. This is more of a West Coast kind of thing. Uh, Calvary Chapel uh, is a very, uh, I, you can't quite call them Pentecostal. They're more charismatic. So very charismatic, uh, very much uh, dispensationalist, all those sorts of things, you know, on the more very conservative side of the church family and all that. Uh, and grew up, you know, with a very uh, restricted view of women, just by assumption, not because I'd studied it in depth. And then I went to undergrad at Biola and uh, met someone who challenged me and, and later married me uh, and all that sort of stuff and said, hey, you know, what if I feel a call to ministry? What if I feel, you know, and she had already been convinced by scripture and stuff like that. So it wasn't her emotions or anything like that. It was, you know, I feel this is where God may be calling me. And I was like, well, I don't know how I feel about that. And so I took a class at Biola uh, re uh, led by uh, Dr. Ron Pierce and uh, he challenged me and I went back to the Bible and studied. And it's been one of those things where I'm like, well, you know, I, I, and it's been a process, you know, it took me about two years to really change my mind and all that. But I came away thinking, I don't see how the New Testament, I mean, I should, I should clarify. I think the New Testament can be read in a multitude of different ways by a multitude of different people. That's not to say it has multiple meanings, although there are multiple meanings that you can ascertain and develop. But it, for me, it was a matter of this 
affects the local church because it will affect if I have a daughter, I have a son right now, but if I ever have a daughter and she feels called to ministry or anything like that, that's a big issue. Uh, my, if my wife feels called to ministry, I, I need to you know, have an answer. What do I actually think about that and stuff like that? And, uh, and it's a huge apologetics question. It's a question of ethics. You know, um, is, does the Bible, or rather in my expertise, the New Testament, does it actually place restrictions on women? And if it does, what kind of restrictions? Are women by nature um, more easily deceived? Are they dumb, uneducated? You know, so what are these kind of, how does, because that's how a lot of these texts have been kind of interpreted and used. And for me, it was a matter of one, it's a question of how do we free the local church to do the mission of the local church and, and culture and society and in formation and discipleship. And if there is no restriction placed on women, then we're in essence holding back not half the church, but the entire church. It's not a matter of all hands on deck. It's one person is in charge with all of that. And so that challenged me to really think deeply about it and um, just come to it. I just came ultimately to a different conclusion that the New Testament doesn't place any we might say eternal restrictions on women any more than it places any eternal restrictions on men. And I think the New Testament, uh, its view of pneumatology, its view of ecclesiology, it's all these, you know, its view of baptism and eschatology. So if we take New Testament theology as a whole, then I think that we are on very powerful grounds to assert not only to other Christians and brothers and sisters who may disagree, but also to skeptical folk by saying, no, the Bible actually has a, a much more progressive view of women. I don't mean politically progressive. I mean a much more um, inclusive view of women. Then we all kind of take for granted, or, or you know, it, then we all may have thought. And so it's kind of the original vision of the church was what Paul and Jesus intended, where we're all involved in church ministry together. And if there is hierarchy, it's not based on gender. It's based on gifting and calling and education and and all those sorts of things. And so that's kind of why I think it's such an important issue and why I'm so passionate about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great uh, outline. That, actually, my next question was for you is could you outline your views? But I mean, you just kind of did that on the whole passage stuff. So it's pretty. I could, give, I could give a quick one if you want, just a real quick, just, you know, text by text if you want, or if you want to do something else, we can do that. Well, uh, let's just dig into some of these okay. passages and kind of just see uh, where your some thoughts. We'll just kind of, what I'll do is I'll read the passage and then you can kind of mm -hmm. just give like your overall thoughts and then we'll see okay. if I have any follow up questions and we'll just kind of mm -hmm. take it from there. Sound good? Hit me with it. Alrighty. So if you have your Bibles with us, you can always pull out your Bibles. You don't have to listen to me just reading this, but we're going to read from 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 8 through 15 in the English Standard Version to start off. Uh, so this says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So there's a lot to unpack there uh, in right. that passage. Could you just kind of give some of your thoughts on that passage in general? Yeah, Um in New Testament studies, we're talking within the realm of uh, the pastoral epistles, first two, one, two Timothy and Titus. And for a lot of people, there is a, a debate or at least a conclusion that Paul didn't write these epistles. And so when we're talking about Paul and women, you can kind of just shunt those off to the side. Um, I don't find that to be compelling. I'm, uh, I, I think Paul probably wrote the pastoral epistles. 
Uh, and so I'm kind of left with, well, they have to be interpreted and not just kind of tossed aside. So maybe that makes me a little weird, at least in New Testament studies. But uh, I, I think the initial thing we need to do is look at the very beginning of the epistle. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll, I'll just give kind of a footnote if anyone wants to just kind of go back and read chapter one. You have Paul essentially arguing or making this point that he doesn't, he's urging people uh, that you might instruct certain people not to teach any different or some translations say false doctrine, so contrary things, and not to be occupied with sorts of stuff like uh, myths and endless genealogies, that speculations and all that sort of stuff, right? So he has a very, uh, we might say, the purpose of writing the epistle is to correct something. He's writing to change behavior or challenge behavior that is going on, which he perceives as negative. You don't say don't do something if it's a positive thing. You want you, you only prohibit negative things, just as a good hermeneutical rule. And so what we have here is already towards the end of the first chapter, just to give a little more context, uh, Paul says, and I'm reading from the NRSV, which I don't think is any different, at least on this point, than the ESV. I'm giving you these instruct instructions, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, that so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Okay, so there is a certain point to these instructions. They are to bring people into conformity of Christ, right? They're, you're all to be kind of brought together in this. And by rejecting conscience, certain persons have, excuse me, shipwrecked or suffered shipwreck in the faith. So, okay, the whole point is to bring people together in Christ as the body of Christ in unity. But some people within this kind of realm have turned things on their head and have moved off. And Paul makes the point by calling them by name, which is really interesting. He doesn't normally do this. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've turned over to Satan. Sucks to be them, you know, uh, so they may learn not to blaspheme. So the fact that Paul names two men specifically who is turned over to Satan, meaning you probably have, it's probably euphemism for being kicked out of the church or expulsion of some sort. And that has a pedagogical purpose, you know, so they may learn not to blaspheme. So we can kind of surmise that Alexander and Hymenaeus are kind of the source of these heresies, these different doctrines, these different ideas that are being promulgated in the church. And if that's the case, then we are on good grounds to look at what happens in chapter two. So you know, bringing that with us, then when Paul gets to the men, you know, he says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. So we wouldn't say that is exclusively for men because, you know, you don't want women. It's, it's not to say it's OK for women to just, uh, you know, it's OK for women to pray in anger. Uh, but it has a specific impulse. It's a specific command that has a universal application. And so when we get to the text about women or wives, depending on how you translate it, there is a debate over are these women or wives? This is a marriage relationship or, or just kind of a, a gen generic you know, male-female relationship. Um, you get to this text where what seems to be the case is you have the language used of teaching. And the question is, what does that teaching entail? Because Paul says, uh, at least at the very beginning, uh, they should dress and kind of demonstrate themselves in a certain way, modesty, uh, mental soundness, uh, professing reverence for God and all those sorts of things. So he's kind of challenging them to live in a new way, which suggests that they are probably involved in some sense within the stuff that's happening in the first chapter, right? Just That just makes sense. You bring what's happened before. And if that's the case, then what Paul says in chapter, and rather in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with full submission is already radical. That is a radical thing to say in the first century because you don't have women uh, being as highly educated as men. They just simply weren't. Uh, and so already Paul is basically saying, here's the correction to the stuff being talked about in chapter one. It's not just chapter one. If you keep reading on into the pastorals, you'll see stuff in chapter four and five about uh, silly genealogy being promulgated by women. 
And so women are probably the ones who were deceived by Alexander and Hymenaeus who are taking that heresy, that heretical stuff into the church as they kind of go along. And so Paul's point here is to stop that dead where it is. And so basically he says two things. One, this is the only imperative in the passage. A woman must learn quietly with full She's take the position of a learner, not a teacher. And so uh, that's very important for us to, to have in mind, right? In verse 11. And then verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, there's multiple ways you can interpret that and take that. Uh, very briefly, without getting into too much, uh, we might say, historical background, I think the translation is probably closer to something like, I'm not permitting a woman to teach or have some sort of domineering or control. The verb that's used there to exercise authority, at least in the ESV as we have up here, uh, very often, almost exclusively, is used in negative connotations. So like a, someone abusing a slave or Cain becoming something violent over Abel, right? What happened to that? Well, he killed him. You know, that's really bad. That's, And so what we have here is Paul is basically saying, I'm not permitting a woman to teach or to do X over another person, in this case, a man. And so it's a way of reorientating the constitution of the teaching away from it. Rather than doing that, you are to learn. And then he gives an example. You know, for Adam was formed first then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, fell into transgression. So that is basically, I think, Paul's kind of biblical theology of creation, right? Not to say there's, I don't want to bring the whole language of created order because I feel it's just misleading. There's just too much freight on that train. But what he's doing here is basically saying, here is an example of what happens when a woman is deceived. It brought about cataclysm. It brought about all this sort of stuff. And it didn't happen because she's a woman. It happened because she was deceived. And so what we have here, I think, and of course, in verse 15, yet she'll be saved through childbearing or the childbirth, depending. And that is a debated translation. You know, you do have lots of different elements of that. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so the whole bookend is basically a reorientation of the new life in Christ and not being led around by heresies, by false doctrine, by all the sorts of things that characterize all the other religious cults in the, at least in that area, because it's writing to Ephesus where you have the major Artemis cult and the Dionysiac cults and all these sorts of things. So Paul is basically saying, in a nutshell, and apologies for the runaround, because it's, you have to explain the text quite a bit in order to get there. Paul is, uh, we might say, temporarily prohibiting women from teaching in the church for the purpose of them learning. And we have an axiom in Jewish literature that says, in order to be a teacher, you must learn. Sirach makes that point in Jewish literature. You can't just teach if you don't know anything, because that leads to, as we said, destructive heresies and all that sort of stuff. And so in conclusion, I think this text is kind of overinterpreted in many ways to say, well, women can't do this because of Eve. And it's like, well, hermeneutically, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But what does make sense is you have a temporary prohibition of women, at least in Ephesus, in this section, because... We need to make sure we keep that in, in mind as well, of women being uh, deceived and therefore deceiving others. And Paul says, no, don't teach, learn. And of course, the whole point of learning is to go out and then once you learn something that challenges your whole lifestyle, it challenges your ecclesiology, it challenges your interpersonal relationships because you're no longer deceived, you're moving in a, we would say, conformity with Christ. And so that's kind of my general take on the passage. It's not an eternal uh, restriction on women. It is a temporary prohibition that women learn and not engage in false teaching. And that's not just my view. It's a view of other scholars and New Testament folks as well. Like Cynthia Westfall takes that view, and she's written a really massive, great book on this, Paul and Gender, and Philip Payne as well. So it's not just me taking, I'm kind of building off them, although my own reading includes other stuff in there. But that's kind of my general 
reading of the passage without getting into too much detail, that would make this a 10 hour uh, conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I think YouTube's limit is like maybe eight or something, so they probably kick us off. Uh, a couple questions here as we look at this passage, just kind of sure. things that I think about. First, we'll just start with uh, kind of at the end in verses 14 and 15, where it kind of it talks about how women are saved through childbearing, uh, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. What do you? How would you respond to someone who says that this passage is demeaning to women? Because it seems like mm -hmm. almost it looks like, you know, the woman made the mistake, Paul's blaming the women for the issues, right. things like that. Um, how would you respond to that? No, and it, it, it's a great question. It's a great question. And it is, and there is uh, a debate here with uh, the language of childbearing, because you do have, you know, in verse 15, you can see, you know, say through childbearing. Yeah, and you do have a debate here about if this is a reference to the act of childbearing, you know, the act of giving birth, um, which means Paul is essentially affirming justification by faith through baby making, which doesn't make sense in any kind of Pauline construct of theology. It's, it's just, uh, in my mind, I, and I'm willing for Paul to be challenging me, to challenge me, to change my mind and all that. I just don't see that anywhere taught. And if it's taught here, then I don't know what we do with Romans and Galatians. So that's just kind of my first thought. The second thing is, if this is a reference to the childbirth, then you have an oblique kind of reference to the Proto-Evangelion, right? The, uh, the, the, in Genesis 3, where uh, the, your seed will crush his head, you know, the serpent, and all that sort of stuff. And so you have maybe Paul kind of taking this idea of, because he does appeal to, you know, Adam being formed first than Eve, which, you know, okay, that's just a sequence. That's just what happened. There's nothing, at least here, that Paul makes a big deal out, or at least I don't see it. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so the woman kind of fell into transgression by means of the serpent. That's kind of, you know, if we're doing kind of a compressed biblical theology, I think that's what Paul's doing. Then childbearing or childbirth here is probably a reference to Christ. And Christ is woven throughout the entire passage, right? If you scroll up a little bit, you'll see him. He's the mediator between God and humankind. He is human. He is the, the anti-lutron, the, the, uh, the, the ransom for all being paid and all that sort of stuff. So Christ is kind of at the center of all of this. Um, and I think that's, that's helpful because that kind of gets us away from the idea of uh, that Christ, that rather that we have different stipulations for what it means to be a Christian, because that's essentially what Paul would be arguing. So and that places us in a really weird realm of, well, what about all the women named in the New Testament who are single, or at least who are not named with their husband, which is interesting. And what does that say now to the church and to women everywhere that uh, in order to be in Christ, you have to have babies? That just, it, it brings up a lot of theological and historical questions that I don't see kind of from that reading. And so my response to someone answering this or bringing up this really good question is to say, what Christ does here, and she'll be saved through the childbirth, is basically Paul's way of saying Eve is being redeemed through Christ, and the same way Adam is being redeemed through Christ in that Adam-Christ typology in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. You have kind of an Eve typology, or as my wife likes to say, and she's doing her doctoral work on this question, an Eve Christology. Eve is the one who fell into transgression, and Paul is saying Christ even redeems Eve. Eve and women, by extension, even men by extension, are not removed or excluded from God's salvific work. And I think that's quite powerful because it says it's not saying you have to have children in order to be in Christ or be a Christian. Because what do we say to people who are who, who can't have babies? You know, but it is saying your status as a woman in Christ is on the same level playing field as a man in Christ, meaning at the, as N.T. Wright likes to use this phrase, the ground is level at the foot of the cross and all people can come to Christ in that kind of realm. And so rather than being about having babies in order to be saved, which 
I, uh, that's interesting. Uh, it's I think arguing by you by reference to the Proto Evangelion, you know, the, the 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 serpent being crushed and all that sort of stuff, is bringing in that kind of biblical theology that we see expounded fully in the Book of Revelation. You know, the the serpent being thrown into the fire and all that sort of great stuff. You know, that great apocalyptic image, uh, and that's Paul's way of basically saying I'm tying in Eve's story and Adam's story together in Christ as a way of saying here's what happens when you go off the rails into heresy, into false doctrine. But thankfully, because Christ is good and wonderful, and Paul actually hasn't kicked the women out of out of the church, he's only kicked the two men, here's how you reintegrate into this new society, this new way of doing church, new way of being Christians. And you do that through the childbirth, who incidentally, as Mary and, and the Gospels like to say, came through woman, born, as Paul says, born under the law, born from woman. And that is just central to Paul's Christology, that he, Jesus was human, and in becoming human, represented all people before God equally. So that's kind of my general, it's a long response, but it's one of those things where it's such a good question. You kind of just can't give a, a tweet. You have to <laughs> explain it a little bit. And it doesn't mean I've got it hundred percent right, but that's kind of my general reading of the passage. So rather than being about sexism or all that sort of stuff, it's actually a way of saying women are included in Christ as equals. And it doesn't mean we're diff we're the same. We're not, but it does mean we engage in Christ in the same way that Christ came to redeem us all from the curse of Adam and Eve, and in doing so is redeeming us from that curse. Wow, that's great. Uh, yeah, I think it's hard to put this thing into 280 characters. So, I mean, I think you yeah. definitely chose the right route. Uh, one more question before we move on to the next passage. Uh, I think this is probably a bigger question, one that you see a lot more, and that's the question of verse 12 primarily. Um, when people will use this passage to say that, women cannot be a pastor or um, speak in a church, something along those lines. Obviously there's a lot of different ways we could take this. You could probably talk about this mm -hmm. for a good three or four hours, but if you could give us just maybe a couple minutes, three minutes, take whatever you sure. need, just kind of talk about how this scripture should be applied in the modern church. Yeah. And I, and that's a good question too. And I think, um, as I mentioned, the, the best linguistic and historical studies that I've read and I've read, way more than it's, than it's even fun to read on this uh this one little verb here uh to exercise authority if you look at if you pull up five or six other english translations like the nrsv the common english bible even the king james they will say something different for this verb because this verb only occurs here in the new testament one time right here and so it's like okay we need to stop because this is really a unique kind of word and it's not a word that at least that i've seen usually denotes authority uh, Paul does use that language in, in husband-wife relationships in 1 Corinthians 7, where neither person, neither spouse has exudiazo, uh, reign or supremacy over the other, but they give it to the other, right? And so there's kind of that mutuality kind of idea there. That's really the only explicit instance that I found where authority is actually used in the husband-wife relationship explicitly. Uh, and so what we have here is a question of if he's prohibiting inhibiting something, then exercise authority cannot be taken positively because Paul doesn't prohibit positive things. He prohibits negative things. So what exercise authority here means probably in accordance with Greek and Jamin Hubner, Cynthia Westfall, and Philip Payne and others have written a lot on this topic, is that the verb there, rather the infinitive form of the verb, probably denotes something like uh, control over, uh, some sort of domination or um, like you might say, tyrannize a little bit or act. It, it has authoritarian kind of language or independent language. So you'd say something like, um, I'm not permitting a woman or a wife, depending on how you translate that, to teach or to um, play the tyrant over a man. And so it has that kind of authoritarianness or overlordship 
kind of connotation. And if that's the truth, then that would be an eternal thing. No, it's never appropriate for anyone in Christ in the church to act in a controlling, domineering, or authoritarian manner, male or female. The fact that we have an instance here of men, or rather of women, kind of proves the point. Women aren't allowed to act authoritarians, and Paul actually, according with the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and 6, would be very angry if men were doing that. And presumably they were because he kicked them out of the church in chapter 2 or chapter 1. And so um, it's probably best here to, to view Paul as saying, I'm not permitting a woman to act in an authoritarian manner through teaching false, false heresies or false doctrine. Rather, as he kind of recapitulates, she's to remain quiet. And that's kind of an allusion back to verse 11 where she is to learn. And so basically, here's the solution to the problem. You are teaching authoritarian in an authoritarian or usurping way with, you know, kind of flexing your muscles. And that's not appropriate in the church ever. doesn't matter who's doing it. That sort of thing is not allowed at all. And so basically, I think that's kind of his way of taking it. And if you read the Common English Bible or other English translations, you see like the King James says usurp, which has a negative kind of connotation. You're not allowed to usurp authority or usurp a man or domineer someone. And I think um, then we are in the realm and asking or answering your second part of your question. How does it apply today? Well, uh, I don't know about you. Um, I'm a I'm uh, licensed in the uh, Baptist a Baptist denomination, and I'll be I was going to be ordained, then COVID hit and all that sort of fun stuff. So that's been mush. But I mean, we think about you know the Southern Baptist Convention with you know the the sex scandals. We think of uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, independent fundamentalist Baptists and all these sorts of things. We see these sorts of kind of authoritarian evil things specifically and often related to sexuality and, and, and um, people acting in really terrible ways like Willow Creek. You know, we think of all these horrific things. A lot of our, a lot of our heroes have shown to have really promiscuous evil sins in their closet, a lot of skeletons. And I think if we take that in mind um, here, we, we actually have something that's powerfully applied to both genders, to both male and female, neither person, is ever permitted to act in an authoritarian manner over another, specifically within a church or Christian context. Because the whole point, as Mark, as Jesus says in Mark 10, you know, 39 through 45, uh, the, uh, you are not to act like the Gentiles and lord it over people. Rather, you are to be a servant. You're a, to adopt the posture of someone who's seeking to serve rather than being overlord others, to over others. And I think that's how this verse can be applied. And it actually, I think, applies very well to both genders at that point, because Paul is basically a good equal opportunity offender. No one of you is to act this way. And I think that's quite profound and applicable to our modern day. And I think, I think if all of us took that seriously, you know, in our churches and our, in our parachurches, we wouldn't have a lot of the problems we had. Just my thought. Yeah. That's a lot of great thoughts. Uh, so we are going to transition here to the next passage as I pull it up on the screen for everyone who's watching with us via YouTube. If you are listening via podcast, you are just out of luck because there is no way to show it on the screen for you. Uh, so this next <laughs> passage we're going to read is 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, a lot shorter passage than mm -hmm. the one we just read. Uh, this passage says, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So, starting off, Nick, you just have some initial thoughts about the passage, uh, just kind of looking at it? Yeah, um, there's, and this passage is is similar in a lot of ways to the passage you and I just talked about. Um, you have the language of um, silence, which is, you know, kind of a linguistic kind of echo. 
um, permitted to speak, um, uh, desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. So this is not about a church context per se. This is about, we might say, a, a husband-wife kind of relationship and shameful and all those sorts of things. And so I think, and there's two questions we have to ask about this passage. Uh, the first one is in New Testament studies, specifically in textual criticism, um, you, you had a, oh, what, oh, uh, Craig Evans uh, on who from Houston Baptist. I think it was yesterday, your live stream. A couple days ago, yeah. Yeah, great, great guy, an expert in this sort of thing. I don't know what he thinks about this passage, but it'd be one of those, you could have asked them, did Paul actually write these two verses? And he would he would know exactly what you're talking about. And I don't know what he would say, yes or no, or perhaps I'm not putting words in his mouth. But so there was a huge debate in kind of critical scholarship. Uh, did Paul actually write these or are they a letter interpolation or rather an insertion into the text? And there is really compelling grounds to think that Paul did not originally pen these two verses. And this is a big issue in text criticism, right? You know, the study of our earliest manuscripts and all of that. And suffice to say, you have what is called the Western text type, right? You have this kind of Western text. And uh, with these two verses, 34 and 35, they put them after verse 40. So those two verses are moved as a block to the end of the chapter. And so it would look like something like this. If we were to read the text as it is, so I'll just go through it. Um, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Or did the word of God originate with you, or, or are you the only ones who reached it? You can see it kind of flows a little bit. It actually, you, the train of thought is kind of there. But you would get to the end in verse 40, and it would say, but all things should be done decently and in order. Uh, but then the verses would appear that women should be silent, or wives rather should be silent in the churches and stuff like that. And so what we have here is in, in textual criticism, and this is not an air to air, air, well, air to, wow, uh, mm -hmm. an air, uh, an airtight uh, uh, principle. But it's if you see verses moving as units, as blocks, then there's something fishy going on in the, in the transmission of the text. So, for example, uh, John, uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery in John's gospel, right? Uh, you know, uh, the great historical story, probably a true story, doesn't actually belong in our in John's gospel, right? It's, but wherever it moves, it moves as a unit, as a block of text, which tells us almost instantly, okay, this story has independence and it's moving and it can appear, I mean, it appears at the end of Luke's gospel and some later manuscripts, it moves all over the place. And so for us, the question we have to ask is, are these verses actually original to the text of 1 Corinthians, specifically in chapter 14? And Philip Payne, has done, uh, who's a textual critic, uh, an expert who did his PhD at Cambridge, has done a lot of work on this subject. Uh, I think he's probably right, but it's, I think you can offer an explanation if it, they are original to the text. So let me kind of do that. I just want to make an intellectually honest caveat there. Um, what you have here is two things. One is... Um, the women should keep silent in the churches. Okay, uh, does that mean complete silence? Well, no, because 1 Corinthians 11 has women praying and prophesying in church alongside men. So they can't be silent. That So already we're kind of, and that's where the interpolation question comes in. It's like, okay, that's a little odd. So what, you know, for they're not permitted to speak, but to be in submission, just as the law says. And so the first thought is, where in the Old Testament law are women told to be silent? The, it's it's not there. And I went and asked my Old Testament prophets. I'm like, are the women in, in the Old Testament um, supposed to be quiet? And he's like, no, that's a New Testament thing. I'm like, gee, thanks. That, that's that's not helpful. You know, he's, he's sarcastic. But and so but it's one of those things you don't see any sort of law there. OK, so that's a, a red a kind of an issue, too. You're like, OK, so what law? What where is this coming from? Is this rabbinic law? Um, which is weird because I don't think the rabbis in Judaism were that sexist either. I mean, you can find sexist things, but I, I think I think we often kind of make Judaism kind of a foil for for us. It's like, oh, Jesus wasn't sexist, but the Jews were. It's like, no, it's, it's a little more complex. 
But all this to say, if there's something they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. There's a solution. So it's not about permanent silence or exclusion from the pastorate or any sort of thing. It's if they want to learn, which is a good thing already affirmed by Paul, do it at home. Worship is not meant to be a Q&A session. And I think if we take the text as kind of just on its face value, that's what it says. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church, meaning to be uh, to be talking in church during worship and prophecy and all that sort of stuff. As Paul talks about, you know, First Corinthians 14 all over the place, you know, praying and prophesying. There's an order to this. Don't just start standing up and being independent and acting this way. And so I don't. Th and so and assuming that they are original to the text, that's, I think, the best option, because uh, it doesn't require us to kind of put Paul in contradiction with himself earlier on in the chapter. And so basically I think what you have is Paul saying, it's good that you desire to learn. I've already affirmed this, even in first Timothy two and all the other places you've been acting in this way. I don't appreciate it. Putting words in his mouth, I appreciate it. But if you desire to learn and you want to know more, talk to your, have a conversation with your husbands at home, not during worship, not during this prophetic charismatic thing. And so, I don't think he'd have, I think he'd have a problem if the men were doing it too, but he's just like, no, we'll just deal with that at home. And then there you go. And so I think that's another kind of way of understanding the text. If we do believe it's original, I have my doubts about it, about the authenticity of the two verses, but I think those are two kind of ways of understanding the text. That doesn't require us to say women have to actually, when they get to church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so would, so you obviously as Christians we believe that the word of God is inspired. So would you say that this text would be the inspired word of God? If it is not original, if it's a later insertion then no, because it was not in the original text that God inspired. But if it is or was, and there's a debate there, but let's say it is, if it is, then yes, it would be inspired. Uh, the only question is, how do we understand and interpret it if it is original? And I think kind of the simple, Ben Witherington gives this great example of, yeah, worship is not meant to be a Q&A session. Have that Q&A session in the, in, the nar in the narthex or in the lobby kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, but no, I, I, my view of biblical authority and inspiration is if it's not in the original text of the manuscripts and all the original text that God inspired, uh, then it wouldn't be inspired. It needs to be in the original text for us. And if it's not there, then no, it wouldn't be inspired. Alrighty. Um, just trying to think if there's anything else I want to add on this, because I think that's really interesting uh, point you brought up. I was actually looking at through my uh, version app Bible version, because mm -hmm. I don't have my, my Bibles over there somewhere. But I was, <laughs> and I noticed the paragraph and I'm just like, it's just something I never picked up on before. And it's really interesting. So if you, I mean, if you don't want to comment on this, that's totally fine. Uh, sure. But if you were to guess, do you think this is a later edition, or do you think this is part of the original text of First Corinthians? If I were a betting man, and sometimes I am, uh, I would say, based on the work of Philip Payne, who's done work in our earliest manuscripts, uh, some of the most, it's not an, a knock on him, but it is very boring reading. It's not sexy at all. Uh, but if you go and you read it, uh, and you read his article in... Um, in New Testament studies uh, on Codex Vaticanus, our, one of our oldest Greek Bibles. Um, and he, he has a book uh, called uh, Man and Woman, One in Christ, where he has about, I, I think it's like 80 pages on these two verses. And the whole point of that, that chapter is basically to argue that Paul, these are a later edition. They are an interpolation or an insertion into the text. And I think based on text critical grounds, it is a good case. And it, if, you can't be 100% certain, and you don't want to be. You want to leave room for new new material to come out and all that sort of stuff. But for me, I'm like I'm like 75% confident that Paul didn't pen these two verses. 
just, but that's based on internal and external issues, you know, manuscript movement, um, addition, uh, potential, um, uh, we also have an instance where I believe it's Codex Valdensis where a scribe actually removed them and put them in the margin of the manuscript, which kind of indicates it's, it's suggestive, you know, so it's not, it's not a knockdown case, you know, it all kind of adds up. Um, so for me, I, I think most likely it is an, an interpolation, but I can't say for with 100% certainty. And if it is an, not if it is not an interpolation, then I think the understanding that Paul is basically saying don't turn worship into a Q&A session or YouTube channel comments kind of section, <laughs> take that outside, then I think that makes good sense as well, because I don't think Paul actually at least contextually believe that women are actually to keep their mouths shut in church because they weren't keeping their mouths shut in church by his own happiness yeah. with them prophesying and praying and stuff. So it, it's, yeah. it's a good question. It's, I, I wish I had more certainty on it, but I, I figure better to be a little restless and not hundred percent certain on this question. Cause you never know what comes out. Yeah. And I think it's hard to give a hundred percent certainty of something that was written a while ago. So yeah, but I think it's a great outline. Uh, we are going to go to one more passage here. We are going to do a little bit of q and I saw that Connor in the chat did ask a question. We will get to that question at the end. But for now, we are going to look at Ephesians 5, verses, 20 through th verses 22 through 23. Uh, you can read along with us, or if you are listening via podcast, Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 23 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. So, um, so stuff to unpack there. What are kind of your initial thoughts as you kind of read and study this passage? Yeah, and, and it's, it's one of those passages. The more I read it, the more I am shocked by how revolutionary it is. Um, so, okay, if we do what I did in uh, when we talked about the Timothy passage, we go a little further, or a little earlier on. You have language in verse 15. Uh, be careful then how you live, not as unwise folks, but as wise folks. And so don't get drunk with wine. Um, basically, it's, it's, it's to compress it a little bit. Paul is essentially saying in, in, the, in verses 15 through 20, 20, here is the new life of being filled with the Spirit. It doesn't include debauchery. It includes, you know, singing and making melody to the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father, and all these sorts of things. It's it's a very robust, wonderful passage about um, uh, about how interrelated the Christian community is, and this is applied to everyone. No one is allowed to get drunk with wine or anything like that. And so, what we do is when we hit a transitional verse, verse twenty-one. If you want to, I don't know if you want to pull it up on the screen. You have verse twenty-one, which um, says. Uh, be subject or submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that functions uh, exegetically, I think, as a way, and these sorts of things get complex, but it it's functions in a way to bridge what was said before with what follows. So it has kind of a transitional element to it, which means that uh, it is taking what is said before and bringing it in, and also it adds clarity to what follows. So think of verse 21 as kind of a lens that you can look in one way, see something, and if you flip it, you can see in the other direction as well. So it gives illumination in both directions. So in verse 22, uh, we have what's called an inferential verb. So verse 21 has that submitting, right? That submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's an explicit call to mutual submission. And then in verse 22, in our earliest manuscripts, we don't have a verb. We have, it would read, if we read it just woodenly, as woodenly as we can, it would say something like, wives to your own husbands. Now, the verb is being inferred and pulled from verse 21, so it's implied grammatical. It's 
it's, it's so basically what we're saying is the verb is not present at least right there but it is taking that verb from verse 21 and what that means is wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord is it an explicit outworking of what mutual submission looks like contextually and so Paul, but Paul, what is interesting here doesn't really say a lot about what that looks like in the day-to-day -day life, because in the ancient context, you know, you have the powder familias, the head of the household and all those sorts of things. Women had really no, uh, we might say sovereignty over their bodies, whether it was for sex or for um, procreation. I mean, you kind of blend the two, obviously. Um, not a lot of rights as well, at least in broader society, although in Roman culture, you did have kind of a growing kind of political movement for women's rights and stuff like that. And so Paul doesn't really give an explicit example of what it looks like for a woman to submit. He kind of says, it's kind of just how what you've been doing, but he gives it a Christological lens. You know, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And what you have here is headship is defined as this on top of this right? Uh, if you're listening to podcasts, a literal physical head sitting on top of your body, right? And that's the metaphor that Paul uses. And he uses all, all over the place, the head body metaphor. And what that means here, Christ as the head of the church, which is his body. So uh, church is defined as body, right? And he himself is savior. And so what you have here, I think, is Paul basically saying Christ and the church is similar, although you can't say it's identical because men or husbands are not, of course, Christ, you know, so it's, it's not a perfect analogy. And I don't think Paul intends for it to be an exhaustive or perfect analogy, but it is to say, this is how the husband and wife relate. But rather than being set on, we might say a hierarchy, it is based on an organic assumption. That is the head and body is one thing. The head body is a oneness kind of organic symbiotic metaphor. And Paul basically is saying Christ functions this way. Uh, and you'll have this other kind of bo head body language in chapter four of Ephesians. If you want to actually pull it up, it'd be Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. And I'll, because um, I think that gives a lot of context for kind of this metaphor. And Ephesians is very big on metaphor. It would be 16 or 4 uh, through 16? 4, 4, 14 through 16. All right. Um, and we're thinking about metaphor. So Paul is explicitly using metaphorical language. It doesn't mean it's false language, but it's it's meant to evoke and give an example. So, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro from the waves and carried about every scheme of wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And then Paul kind of says, and here's the example, or here's the metaphor. So keep, keep the head body metaphor in mind. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we, all of us as Christians, are we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom, so no, notice generation or source language, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint by, with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that builds itself up in love. That is a beautiful metaphor of the oneness of the body of Christ. And Christ is the, we might say, the source or the generating power of the body, which is makes sense theologically because without Christ, you don't have the church. So Christ is the source or the generating power of the church. He's the one that gives us our life. And, and that's kind of a, a unique kind of metaphor, you know, the head language and the body language, because in other Jewish literature, if you lose your head, the body dies. I mean, it's a warfare image, but that's kind of the idea. The head is kind of the source or life of the body. And it's a weird view of physiology and biology, but it makes sense. You take in food through your mouth life, you know, food and life and all that, you know, you breathe through your mouth and all that. And so it's kind of a, it's a really interesting metaphor. So if we want to go back to Ephesians 5 with that kind of generative power involved here, I think we have something uniquely profound. And so 
if we take that that metaphoric image and we apply it in con in, into the context of what has been said before, so a husband and wife being subject to one another in reverence or fear of Christ, right? So mutual submission. Wives, here is a here's a reason why you are to submit to your husband, right? Uh, because Christ's headship, or we would say Christ's headness, is the generating source of your life. You know, in the ancient world, that's literally true. If the husband didn't work or the husband were cruel or calculating or evil, he wouldn't provide for his body. He would just throw her out on the street. And so what Paul does, but that's not what I think is so radical about this text. What I think is so radical is what Paul says to the husbands. Paul says, uh, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her or handed himself over for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with a washing of water by the word. And he continues on by talking about in verse 28, in the same way, so bringing all that in the same way of all the way I've been talking, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And we kind of think of that as a silly little idiom, but no, this is so much more profound because no one ever hates his body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it just as Christ does for the church. And I think what we miss here is Paul is not giving us kind of two separate commands for each side. Like the man does this and the woman does this as if there's some sort of separation between the two. What Paul, I think, is doing so profoundly saying, husbands, here's what mutual submission looks like. It looks like loving your wives and looking. it looks like you cleansing her with washing of water, presenting her in splendor, um, viewing her body as your own so you don't have any right to sexual conquest or to authoritarianism or all that sort of stuff. And I think what also gets missed is the language of without blemish and washing, those sorts of images. That's woman's work in the ancient world. Paul tells the husband to do women's work. That is Paul's way of saying you need to have more empathy for your wives. You want to know how to submit? It looks like what your wife does, and it looks like you working with your wife to do that together. And so it's not a matter of Paul, you know, you have the woman here and the, the metaphor is, you know, the hand up here and the, you know, the husband up here, the woman down here. You don't have Paul going, no, I'm bringing the man down. No, what he does is I'm bringing the woman up to your level so you will see her as your counterpart, someone that you have to submit to as well. This is how you present the church in a certain way. Um, this is how you love your wife. And this is how she respects you and all this sort of stuff. And so rather than being focused on kind of the wifely duty of submission, which is just kind of this nebulous concept. It is, Paul is basically turning headship or headness on its head. You want to be the head, you give it up for Christ and you submit to your wife in a way of loving her as your own body, of not lording it over her and all that sort of stuff. And this brings it into perfect conformity with 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is probably our longest marriage text. And we don't have to go there, but Paul uses explicit language of authority over. But the husband does not have authority over his wife's body, but she has authority over him. And then he flips it, right? And what I think happens here is we often figure, try to figure out who's in charge of the relationship. And Paul's point at the end of the day, it's a profound mystery. And I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. Christ is the point of this. It is not about who's in charge, but if someone has to be in charge, it's Christ. And the example of Christ giving himself up for the church. And the beautiful thing of that is everyone can do that because the language of slaves in the previous chapter of children in the next chapter, or the, I'm sorry, the, the next chapters and all that sort of stuff, they can do it too. They can love Christ as Christ loves the church and they can all be involved in this sort of new way of doing family. And I think 
that gets us away from the realm of sexism and all that sort of stuff because it essentially says, no, the husband does not have special privilege in this relationship. Rather, here's how the husband loves, respects, and treats his wife by sacrificing himself for her. And she let in her basic responses, she lets him do it. And then you have this kind of reciprocal mutuality that kind of just keeps going. So that's kind of how I read the passage. And it is um, it is a complex passage, but I think that's a consistent way of doing it. That's also consistent with Paul's theology of marriage elsewhere, and also his view of the head-body relationship and the interdependence of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a beautiful way of summing up this passage. I'm just like, wow. Well, because really we, we automatically think, right? Like, I'm married. I don't know if you're married or anything like that, but... <laughs> You know, it's you think people think about marriage as you know I, it's time to get mine right you know and a lot of people kind of present Christian marriage as boy I can't wait to have sex you know that's what we're waiting for you know at least that's what I was raised with and my response is guys like marriage is such a more beautiful thing than just getting your way or who's in charge like think about it you have an eternity to get to know this person that you're married to and not only that do you think so low of them that they have to be your subordinate or your your secondary or something like that. No, she, you're to treat her body as you'd want to be treated. You are to respect her agency in, in marriage. You are to respect her, her mental capacity and her, her, her agency as, 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 as a voluntary moral agent, which you don't find in the ancient world. You, you find women being basically sexual conquests. Here, Paul is explicitly affirming a wife's agency and relationship with her husband, not in contradistinction to her husband, but in relationship with her husband and vice versa with the husband with her. So rather than being about all these sorts of kind of vague headship models, it's, it looks, it, it, sometimes the Bible is so simple. You want to be this way. You want to be the person who gives life to the other. You give up your life for the sake of that person. It's not about your rights. It's about giving up your rights for the sake of empowering and mutually submitting to one another. And I think that, in a marriage, and not my marriage, but I've seen enough marriages where the person, and what it could be men or women wanting to be in charge, right? And that there's kind of that jousting kind of thing. And I think that's so crippling to a marriage. And it's not only that, it's crippling to faith formation, right? And I think a lot of us would do so much better if we just basically read the text that way. And it got us back to the original vision of what Paul intended. So we're not giving something new. It's, I think this is what Paul originally intended to communicate. And if that's true, then we've just got to listen and live up to Paul's original vision. You know, it's not about discovering something new. It's about, no, this is what Paul always wanted for us. And now the mission is we try and live into that as best as we can. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That's all I can really say on that. Uh, one question here, we will transition to a Q&A. I saw one question. If there's any other questions, we will address them. But in a second here, just uh, we went through these passages, but in a broad sense, if someone approaches you and says, how can you believe in, let's just talk, stick to the New Testament. It's, they'll say this sure. book is sexist. It's oppressive to women, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. How do you address that in just a broad sense to the person that's maybe not a scholar? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I, I would say there are two things you have to keep in mind when reading the Bible. First, you have what is called God's idyllic vision in the garden, right? If we, it doesn't matter if it's historical or not. The point, we know what the point is. The original vision of Adam and Eve was for shared dominion and shared rule in creation, male and female together. Um, she's not taken from his foot as to be beneath him, nor from his head to be over him. She's taken from his side as to be sacred counterpart alongside him. They present a united front together in dominion in the garden and, and childbirth and all that sort of stuff. You need one for the other and you have that kind of symbiotic relationship. And I would say that is God's original ideal. 
there's nothing sexist about the woman being created second any more than it says, you know, if you want to flip it, uh, being second is better because who wants a horse and buggy when you can have a car? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's a matter of kind of getting to the point of God's original vision for creation was for mutuality and partnership together in Christ. What happened was in the fall, you are now living in what I call the Empire Strikes Back time, right? You are now living in the shadow of sin and death and violence and all that sort of stuff. And so I'd say, yes, there is sex, there are sexist things in the Bible, but they are not there because God's like, yes, and this is good. They are there because that is how God is telling the story. That is where we have come from. So think about it this way. You have all these horrific things in the Bible, right? You know, violence in the Old Testament, you know, the concubines being cut up and all that sort of stuff. That is not there because God's like, and I want that there because that's a good thing. We often kind of go, well, if it's in the Bible, it has to be good. It's like, well, no, there is sin in the Bible. There are evil things in the Bible, and they are there for us to understand what we are capable of as humans. We're incredibly sinful and incredibly evil sometimes. And I think God's that if we look at it that way, we can see a trajectory of God moving us through those times. And I would dispute that Israel is itself sexist. I don't think the Old Testament really is because you have women judges, you have women prophets, women doing basically everything a man does. Um, but they are living in a patriarchal, violent society. That makes sense. That it just that's just how the world was. But that's not how the world was meant to be. And when we get to Jesus, we see a new radical vision of what it means to be human. And if we take the incarnation seriously, the, the incarnation of Jesus, born of a virgin, born of a woman, enfleshed among us, as John 1 talks about, he did not become a man in the sense of he became male only. He became flesh, as, the, as John 1.14 says. The word became flesh and made his home among us. That means when Jesus came to represent all of us, he included male and female in that. And it, Hebrews 2 talks about this very explicitly. He became like his brothers and sisters, his anthropoi, in every way. So when we see Christ, we see the image of the unseen God, the perfect the perfect one who reveals God to us. And every man, woman, boy, and girl can look at Jesus and find themselves in that. And then we go from there. Jesus takes it and moves us. And we get to the vision of Paul. And Paul has women apostles, Junian, Romans 16, 7. He has Phoebe, probably the carrier of the epistle to the Romans in Romans 16, 1 through 2. And she's a deacon and uh, uh, probably of a church. Uh, and we have women co-workers in Philippians 2, uh, 4, 2 through 3, where they're co- they're working alongside Paul. They contended beside Paul in the sake of the gospel. That's gospel missional work. And you have all these women mentioned in Romans 16 as well, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Aquila's not a man, but, you know, you have all these people mentioned in, in, in all these sorts of ways. And I just kind of look at it and go, if Paul had a really big issue with women outside of the two texts, you know, two or three texts we looked at, if we just take Paul's whole theology of, of what it means to be human, baptism in Christ as a new way of the chains come off and being clothed in Christ, and we are a new creation. Every woman hearing that language in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through, or 5, 2, 16 through 17, about if anyone is in Christ, new creation, would hear that and be like, I'm not saved despite being a woman. I am saved because God in Christ has saved me as a woman, as I am a woman. And I think that's so profound because the incarnation dives into that and takes it all all straight with it. And then Paul's whole theology of women, where he names them as co-workers, apostles, prophets, and all that sort of stuff, shows that Paul had didn't have, at least in my mind, a sexist bone in his body. And so when we live up to the vision shown to us in the New Testament, and we reclaim that vision of women's equal participation in the church, then we are basically moving back to Eden and not moving to Golgotha and 
Vegas and all the nasty places we like to think about, you know? And so I think my response to them now in a nutshell is, yes, there are evil things in this world. There are, there are things in the Bible that give us pause, but not because of God doing them, but because we are sinful and evil and we need to repent and get back to the vision of what God originally intended the relationship between male and female to be. And that is partners in the gospel for the sake of the kingdom, for the goal of saving the entire world. Mm. Really it's good. a little longer than I'd like, but that I tried. I tried to get it as short as I could. I say a minute, and it's like five. I'm just ah, I'll work <laughs> just on that. With you. You, it's a lot of information. I think you summed it up really well. Uh, we have one question here before we start to wrap things up from Connor Terrell. How's it going, Connor? Uh, he's good, referencing First Corinthians, uh, the passage that we were talking about earlier. He says, "Why are women singled out in this passage?" You mean? I'm guessing you know the passage by heart, but I can go back to it if you want. Oh, that's fine. I got it. I think why women are singled out is because they were the ones being chatty. And Paul's like, uh, if and put another way, uh, if a man's doing it, Paul would have probably singled them out. I mean, he names Hymenaeus and Alexander by name. He names the men doing all these things by name and says, yeah, I handed them over to Satan. So everyone knows. And I think Paul just basically says, look, this is a specific example or an instance where I need to address a specific person or a group. And I think they're there because, and maybe this is a good, this is a much better question than I originally thought. Let me, let me rephrase that. That's, it's actually really good. In, in Christianity, right? And we, uh, if you look at how Christianity, especially as it relates to women, has been received in the early centuries of the church, uh, origin or uh, Celsus, uh, a, a heretic around the time of origin in the second, third, or fourth century, I forget exactly, but in the early church, argued strenuously that Christianity is a religion of slaves, women, and children, which is a negative thing to him. For me, that's a great positive thing because it showed who actually wanted to be a Christian. And these are people that are normally excluded from ministerial leadership and from full participation and uh, life in the civic sphere and the political realm and all that. When you have someone being said, you're, ch you have, you're no longer a slave, you are no longer a woman who's chained to her, her, her oppression or her she's subordination or anything like that, you are now a new creation in Christ and you have gifts and callings in Christ, that can create sometimes a false sense of self. And that can apply to anyone. It's kind of like saying, it's like being 16 and discovering I can have as much sugar as I want. And then you go and you have like 10 tons of candy. And then you begin to realize with people, okay, maybe that wasn't wise. But it's one of those things. I think in First Corinthians, you have what is called the pneumatic women who are discovering the freedom to prophesy and pray in public. And Paul encourages them. But he says, here are some ways of doing it. And so basically he's not taking the rug and taking it away and saying, you can't do any of this. But what he is saying, here's how you do it. Go home and learn and then come back next Sunday or whenever they met, maybe Saturday, come back and then we can get this prophecy and prayer thing going. And so I think he's going out, he's mentioning the women simply because when you have newfound freedom, you use it and sometimes you get kind of crazy with it. And I think that's kind of the message of 1 Corinthians 11 as well yeah. with the hair, the hair and the veils and stuff like that. It's not that they can't prophesy or pray, but here's how you do it in a way that is culturally sensitive to everyone in the room. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go with one more question here. This is a very lighthearted question. Um, something got a different note here before we wrap things up. I got caught up in a debate today on the question of whether we are in, uh, I'm in Eastern time zone and are we in Eastern standard time or Eastern daylight time? I want your take Ooh. on that. Tough I question. saw that. I saw that on Twitter. I'm like, you know, that might just be above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> my, I've always heard it as Eastern Standard Time. I don't know if that's true, but that's how I've always heard it. So my deference is to people that actually live in e EDT or EST. 
if that's where y'all live, then y'all get to claim wit for whatever it is. And I'll just go with what y'all say because you're the expert on that. Yeah, I don't know why I asked a guy from the West Coast about Eastern time. That was – Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Sure, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, I appreciate your time, Nick. I learned a lot. It was that hour just like flew by just like that. Uh, awesome. A lot of great stuff. If people want to follow you and your work, please plug everything you have and how people can follow what you do. Yeah. My wife and I do a podcast together on women in ministry. So we look at all the texts and all the arguments and stuff like that. Um, that's called the split frame of reference podcast because it's the two of us. So it's a split frame of reference. We, I don't know why we thought it was funny and clever. Uh, then we also have the synergist podcast. Uh, my friend Thomas and I do, which is kind of, we call, we jokingly call it the most man centered theology podcast on the internet. Uh, let the, let the listener beware and understand. Um, I, uh, another, uh, some literature that might be helpful for people is I, I, I'm, I would be this book here. I don't know if people can see it. It's called Paul and Gender by Cynthia Long Westfall. It's about 20 bucks. It's a really quick, solid read. It's scholarly, but it's eminently read readable. She's an incredible New Testament scholar, a linguist, theologian. Like she's awesome. We had her on our podcast, but yeah, those two podcasts. And I mean, I, I wrote a book, but it's not, if people want it, they can just message me and I'll send them a PDF of it. I mean, I, I won't make much from the book. It's it's a book on uh, holiness and entire sanctification from a Wesleyan perspective. So if someone wants it, they can go find that on Amazon. It's called The Perfection of Our Faithful Wills. Um, but if you just want a copy, I'll just send you a PDF copy. It's not a problem. Yeah, man. It's been a fascinating discussion. I appreciate your time. Uh, before we wrap things up here, if you enjoyed this Adherent Apologetic show, if you've never been here before, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube if you're joining us there. You can subscribe to us via podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, follow Nick Quiet first, and then you can go to at AA Apologetics on Twitter, Adherent Apologetics on Facebook or Instagram. And after you buy Nick's book, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We are about a little over three-eighths funded, and I really oh, wow. appreciate everyone's support for that. Uh, big shout-out to Curtis and wow, Dalton, who just joined yesterday. So thank you to everyone who's joining the team. Uh, awesome. Appreciate your time, Nick. It's been a great conversation. Looking forward to see what happens with you and your work in the future. Oh, it's been a blessing. Thank you, brother, for having me on. Yeah. God bless everyone. <laughs>